Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. My name is Brandy, and I just wanted to say thank you all for listening and for being a part of this community and this project. We have a lot of exciting things coming up this year, and it wouldn't be possible without your support. And so shout out to our Patreon supporters. Y'all really are the MVPs, and your support makes this all possible. And so I'm really grateful for y'all. So if you want to join that, you can do so at patreon.com slash brandynico. And if you want to help us out in a different way, you can subscribe, rate, and review wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I'm talking with my friend Barnabas Lynn about banking models of theology. Now, even from the title, this one might seem a little more abstract than something like defensiveness or hierarchy or competition, ones we haven't gotten to but that are coming. But I promise that this one is concrete too. It's something that a lot of us have a lot of experiences with, but have literally never had conversations about or don't even know how to because it is to critique not just what we learn, but how we learn it. And so this conversation to me feels specifically important for those of us who are figuring out what it means to deconstruct and reconstruct. And so please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Barnabas Lynn. All righty. Well, Barnabas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Brandy. I'm maybe overly excited, which say what you will about that. I just, I am. But I know a lot of folks probably don't know who you are. And it's one of the things I'm most excited about is having folks get to know you. So I would love for you to describe what does it mean to be you? Yeah, what it means to be me is that I grew up in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, kind of on these island city state nations that are always negotiating themselves between powerful empires, Mm -hmm. torn between different forces. Um, I also grew up in those places as the firstborn son of a Chinese, Chinese American, Cantonese American expat who worked for transnational corporations. So it means that I grew up also going, being educated in Western education systems in these Asian island countries and uh, raised in what I would say is the womb of the transnational corporation, kind of like all the things that orbit around and make this kind of economic class possible. So that's that's kind of where I come from. And I think a lot of my journey, I came to the US when I was 18. And a lot of my journey has just been learning what reality really is. It's been a process of becoming more acquainted with how unreal my upbringing was. Um, and an invitation to becoming more human over time. Mm-hmm. So I'm also a minister, just graduated recently with a Master of Divinity, Mm. and I'm thinking a lot about hospice care Interesting. and what it means to love a dying world. Mm. There's so many things that I wish I could just be like, that I had time to go, how did you get there? What do you mean by that? But what I will ask... um, you know, I feel like I just need to shout out that like you're an amazing bread baker. So if you want to follow Barnabas on Instagram, you'll get like all kinds of amazing bread and gardening slash farming stuff that is nourishing to my soul. So I'm going to put that out there. Yeah, that's something I think we share in common. Like I love, I feel like watching you ferment stuff. We've been on this journey, I feel like, of just doing really, really basic things, which have been very grounding and life-giving during this past year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. 
And I would not say I know anything. I don't know anything about farming, but I did spend the past summer farming and learning about the earth. And that's part of the journey is being like, hmm, let's learn about real life. Let's get out of the brain and into the body and figure out how the earth works, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure we'll come back to that some later in our conversation, as that is a very significant part of how a lot of people understand how we learn, why we learn, and what we learn. Um, but yeah. I would love to hear just a little bit. What is your sense of vocation? What do you see as your kind of vocational? Yeah. What's your What is your sense of vocation in the world? Yeah. I I think um, the way that I oftentimes think about my vocation is I am very drawn to pain within any system. Hmm. So one of my earliest memories is, you know, it was in like fourth grade and it was Christmas time. And we were doing arts and crafts at different stations. We we're making these candy cane reindeers. And one girl broke her reindeer by accident and was upset and wanted another candy cane. And the woman, the, the parent helping out with this craft station was like, I'm so sorry, I don't have another one. And I just felt so sad for this girl. But I think as I've grown up, a lot of it is I really want a lot of life for us. I just want us to live. Mm. And so a lot of my vocation has been around repair and trying to walk with folks as we all try to figure out how to live full and abundant lives. Mm. Yeah. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> what it's meant though, it's also meant a lot of needing to, to tear down and destroy a lot of things that suffocate life. And that makes me feel a certain kind of way sometimes because I think folks can oftentimes encounter me in certain settings and think that I'm not really about life, hmm. which is frustrating. And I don't know if you feel that too. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like, no, I just, I want to live. I want us to live. And there are a lot of things that stand in the way and we got to, we got to upset those things. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a really helpful transition to what we're talking about today, because the way that we learn to learn informs how we live, which sounds so convoluted, but is true. And so today I have you on to talk about banking models of theology, which with anyone who has any kind of Frarian context knows that that's like my cheap ripoff of his idea of banking models of education. But the reality is that as we think about how we think and how we learn and how we experience the world and how we form what it means to be and to exist, that how we learn matters. And for a lot of us who are in Christian or religious spaces, theology is one of the primary ways that we are taught to learn and our engagement with that as well. And so as we talk about that, just know that if you want to go deeper in it, you can read Pedagogy of the Oppressed or think about a variety of different educational methods, but that's where some of this idea is deriving from. I would love to talk about this banking model of theology, both generally in education and in theology. And so could you start with the general? What is a banking model of education slash theology? What does that look like? How would you describe that? Yeah, maybe I'll start off just by giving you a story from my own childhood. When I was in maybe sixth grade, I was living in Hong Kong, and I remember learning about General Sherman in the Civil War. I am a Cantonese descended person living in Hong Kong. The island had already been handed back, just been handed back over to 
the Chinese government, which is complicated. But I, you know, I sat there and I started to learn about all of these wars in the American Civil War. And to me, it was so utterly boring because I was learning to memorize these dates and facts about a place that I had been to a few times in my life. And it felt a lot like reading the Silmarillion and needing to memorize random facts about the dates and names of elves that had never existed and had no meaning for my life. Mm -hmm. So I did terribly all throughout, you know, elementary school and high school, I did very poorly in history, mm. American history specifically. And when I got to the US for college, I did terribly at American government, which was a required distribution class. Yeah, because I just didn't. It was so meaningless. And didn't have any importance on my life, or anybody that I knew growing up. Um, and so I think that that's like a good example mm -hmm. one example of banking education where the idea behind it is that the teacher or the education system has decided that there's this knowledge that you must receive and it's the idea of a teacher as somebody who deposits these mm -hmm. morsels of information into your brain and that me or you as a student is just supposed to be perfect receptacles Mm -hmm. to take it in and to organize it and categorize it so that you can regurgitate it when you need to, to okay. show that you are well adapted to the society that you're being raised to live in. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's Freire's idea of banking education. And some of the concerns about that is I think what was what played out in my own life, which is, you know, until I, was three years into seminary, I always thought I was kind of a dumb person hmm. because I just did pretty poorly in college. Um, I was always more interested in friendships and the arts and was actually banned by my friends from the library because they were trying to study and I would just want to socialize with them. <laughs> but to me, it was just not interesting to memorize all these facts that had no meaning. Hmm. Um, and it had an effect on me and has an effect on a lot of folks where it minimizes, one, the power of knowledge. It makes mm -hmm. knowledge just alien. But then secondly, it also minimizes my own humanity in that I didn't think that I had the capacities that yeah. we have, that we actually do have. So in some ways, I'm really grateful that I was as Dr. King would say, maladjusted in some ways that I couldn't fit too well, but it has severe um, consequences for a long time yeah. on, oh, am I, am I smart? I don't really know. Yeah. Um, and Freire talks a lot about being a system where you have people who become objects mm -hmm. yes. who are just managed. Yes. and shaped to fit in and are further and further disconnected from their own lived realities because they're not being taught about their realities yes. and are taught that to be an educated adult and a contributing member of society, you must transform yourself to fit into the system rather than trying to make sense of 
well, why don't I fit into this system? Mm -hmm. And what is the system? And maybe the system needs to be transformed. Yeah. Yes. And I hear in some of what you're saying that there is this active versus passive role that happens when a teacher or in our case, like a pastor or a preacher or a Mm. seminarian gets to take the dynamic active role of giving, of imparting. And the other person, as you just said, becomes an object or a a receptacle, a receptacle Mm -hmm. or a container in which knowledge is then placed. And then that knowledge is analyzed or validated by what one can see in that. And Mm -hmm. The thing to me that feels dangerous about this banking model of education is that it assumes that people's lived experiences are invalid pieces of data for how they experience or understand the world. And so like how I experience oppression in my own body doesn't have anything to do with Sherman, right? It doesn't have anything to do with these generals. It doesn't have anything to do with the Civil War when those things are all embodied experiences that my stories and the stories of my ancestors actually shape how I experience Mm -hmm. those stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think about Frary that feels really significant to me is that Frary Wright is exiled out of Brazil where he was doing all of his work as a Marxist because he believed that help it, his main work in life was to teach people literacy who had mm-hmm. been under colonized conditions mm-hmm. by using materials and real world problems and questions that would help them become free from their oppressors. Namely, he was shaping both how they learned and what they learned at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are some ways that the consequence of a banking model of education is that the narrative of people who have power and therefore oppressive people becomes the normalized way of knowing or epistemology that we sit in mm-hmm. and therefore dehumanizes us and dehumanizes everyone, de- sorry, dehumanizes us who are oppressed and dehumanizes the oppressor by having us set up human expressions where we live with oppressive dynamics among us. So let's talk a little bit about how this manifests in theology, because I think there's like we can go, hey, there's history class, which I think is probably one of the main places where banking models of education become the most exhausting for most folks. For me, it was music theory, um, which I would just call like white European mid-century Western music theory. (laughs) But, But let's talk about how this manifests in theology. When we think about this banking model of education, there is also therein a banking model of theology. What does this look like? Yeah, this appears everywhere. Uh, But this is kind of the model that we just take for granted as how theology is done and how we should receive theology. I think from the beginning, when we're, if we are born into the church, you're raised to receive truths from a Sunday school teacher and you're, well, I'll just say, I was raised in a place where the Sunday school teacher was always teaching you really what to think about the Bible and what to think about God. And then when you were old enough, you would, you know, join the adults and then the pastor, the head pastor would teach from you the word, teach to you what the word of God meant. And particularly, this would be, at least in my tradition, utilizing all the epistles, Mm. all the letters in the New Testament that are written as instructions to specific contexts, but would be taught in a way that they were truths that kind of these theoretical truths that we needed to abide by and memorize and take in and form our lives around in order to be good Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and what strikes me or what uh, I need to get lang a violent language out of my system, but what feels like it comes up for me is how nefariously this is done and how early it starts. When mm -hmm. I think about my friends who are in Awanas, I think that's what it's called. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I've never yeah, been think, in, but yeah. Me either. But I just remember them having to memorize so much scripture and that memorizing scripture and right some campus ministries utilize this as their primary form of like of discipleship is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you memorize enough scripture that having it in you will then shape you which i think is actually true in some ways mm -hmm. but when we teach kids early to just know what something says but not to interpret how that applies to their life or how that affects them it sets us up to be indoctrinated later where we have a whole bunch of knowledge that is disembodied and in our brains that then we need a person in leadership or in a hierarchy to tell us what it means like you're saying Right. And so I think in banking models of education, the main critique or like the main system that it looks like is lectures. Like a lecture is where like a person in power gives information that is to be deposited into students. But we just translate that really easy to Christianity where it's a pastor or a preacher and a sermon where you are told something and then you're told to apply that thing to your life because someone in a position of authority told mm -hmm. you to do so. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I don't even know if we translated it over from the university to the church. I feel like we started it in the church and then set up universities. And so much of Christian missionary history is our setting up schools to be able to translate to indigenous populations what we already know to be true and then to form them, to form them in the truths of what we already know that we have discovered. Mm -hmm. So it's sad for me because it does feel like the education system in the West is so deeply the product of church, of the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, I think we then attribute respect to people who play that game really well. So like yeah. the person who knows all of the books of the Bible, because they were taught it in a song at Sunday school, somehow seems like they know more hold more knowledge or like sacred knowledge than those who have experienced something in and of themselves and aren't given space to apply that to the scriptures. And so I think that there's lots of ways that I see that play out, but I'm wondering if we could just name a few more because I think that there are lots and lots of ways, like you said, and I think that many of us listening may not see them right away. And so I'm wondering if there are other examples that you can think of, of how this banking model plays out. I mean, I see it. We, It's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in seminaries for sure, you know, sitting in systematic theology classes and watching folks. I remember, you know, I went to a non-Christian university. So I got into seminary. I was like, oh, these folks have been reading some of these theologians and have memorized their work and their ideas since they were 18 mm -hmm. and can just talk about it. And they can use all these words that I don't understand. And I don't know what they have to do with anything. Mm -hmm. It actually is a very emotionally bad, it just feels so bad to sit in these rooms and mm -hmm. listen to people talk about things that you don't know how they relate to anything, but are, you know, this is not just from the front anymore, but this is now in a classroom where it's people, students and teachers are dialoguing about something like eschatology mm -hmm. or ontology that, that you realize you are not fit, you don't fit the system that they've created. And further, what is the subtext is that mastering these ideas is what is going to promote you in any kind of spiritual leadership or authority mm -hmm. or 
it, it's a model where I feel like the more words that you master and the bigger and more theoretical or abstract the concepts that you can be fluent about, the more access and respect you garner, the more recognition you get mm -hmm. um, from both, you know, your teacher, the authority figure, as well as your fellow students and colleagues. And it's just an entire industry in the seminary that is very um, death dealing. But I see it even in college ministry settings where I think I see the effects of it a lot, where folks, when you ask them a question about what you think this passage of scripture might mean, they'll tell you exactly like, oh, I've heard XYZ pastors say it very compellingly and be able to repeat the entire idea mm -hmm. very, very well. But if you ask a few more questions, it'll be like, well, well, I don't know. You have to just go listen to their podcast yeah, yeah. or read their book. And what makes me super sad about that is, and Dr. Jennings, Willie Jennings talks about this in his latest book, it's that plagiarism, which is what we're talking about, banking education just allows you to do plagiarism. You're just mimicking and parroting people's ideas that they've deposited mm -hmm. into you. Not only is it stale, but the, the sin of it is that it's not that you're borrowing other people's voices, though that is bad, maybe, but it's more that it's at the loss of your own voice. Yes. You don't know what you think. Yes. Um, and so I see that a lot in Bible studies that we lead with college students. Mm -hmm. I totally see that too, um, especially in there's, and I think it's it's hard because I think as ministers, there's ways that we can make fun of people who do it, where it's like, no one likes to have the person in their Bible study who's like, well, my youth pastor told me this. But the irony is that we come in with Bible studies that have pre- determined outcomes. So we're doing the thing that we're hating that the student is doing by saying like my youth pastor said, because it goes against what I said, which is somehow more enlightened than one's youth pastor, right. because we're seeing the spirit of God move on campus somehow. Yeah. 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 It's not good. We are in this indoctrinated into the system that we start to participate in it in this way. Yes. Yeah. But then we start to create hierarchies of how one does that, where it's like, well, Though the Southern Baptist, they're bad because they indoctrinate people this way, all while using the same tools to try yeah. to make our own like liberated version of that better. And so I think there's a way that progressive people fall into this in a significant way when we don't deconstruct and reconstruct how we think about yeah. pedagogy or like how we teach yeah. and how we learn. Because yeah. I think even about how like another trope that I think that a lot of ministers hate is when people bring like a study Bible to a Bible study and then read what the study Bible says. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, we're doing the same thing. And I think what we're both describing here is that this kind of banking model of education or theology strips people of the ability to critically think for themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no agency in this model. You're not encouraging people to become actual subjects of their own story. Mm. But you just, they become, we all become these carbon imprints of somebody. We might not know who. And I, I see this happen too with, with, anybody in ministry, I see this all over, is that we, we can see as people start to like participate in the system, even if we don't name it, and we aren't even aware of it, our language begins to change. Mm -hmm. And we start to language is such an interesting thing. But it, 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 in this banking model, it does deal a lot of violence. Because somehow using some words that I have now mastered and you may not understand shows me that I am better than you. Yes. And it's, it's something that I noticed too with folks in seminary who go to seminary that some of our friends have oftentimes pointed out and ridiculed where it's like, Oh, your vocabulary is changing. 
and becoming more difficult to understand. And the thing that grieves me about that with seminarians, with ministers, but also with folks, I think, on the left is that we start to use language that just becomes so removed from people's experiences. And when people don't understand, there's a lot of shaming that happens. Yes. That it's like, well, you, how could you not know um, Mm -hmm. what these words mean? You have to understand, like, uh, and I think there's something I'm trying to unlearn myself that if I'm teaching people with words and ideas that don't make sense to them, I'm doing them a great disservice. Like I'm, I might be, informing them but i am debilitating them yes and having to think about yeah how do we remove ourselves from these patterns that we've been so thoroughly shaped by well yeah and that's something that's very in process for me right now i always joke that i have a two hundred thousand dollar vocabulary because i went to a small private liberal arts college that taught me that critical thinking sounds a certain way yeah i often find that in my conversations with my friends i have to go Ooh, that's the most privileged thing I've ever said because I use this mm. vocabulary and I impose it to present a version of myself that then seems like it's authoritative, but it's only authoritative because I'm parroting what I've been taught is authoritative by people in seminaries or people yeah. who people think are really smart or like. Yeah. And I think that some ways that we do this is actually by like name dropping, mm. like scholars and professionals. And I don't think that's all bad because obviously we're doing that in some ways, but. There's ways that if you're like, well, Piper says this. That was one of the people that was weaponized against me a lot. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, Piper says this in this particular book, in this particular way, where it's like, oh, I'm communicating to you that I have ingested a certain piece of media, and that media is now being put out of my mouth, even if it hasn't shaped my life in any way. Or it is mm-hmm. shaping my life, but only because I've been told it's authoritative, because it's published in a book somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit specifically about how this is connected to whiteness. Because, right, Paulo Freire, he's in Brazil, which you can say a lot about colorism and whiteness in Brazil itself. There's a really complicated history around all of that. But I think that there's a lot of ways that this banking model of education is very Western and very white. So can we talk a little bit about the whiteness of this banking model of education? And I know you talked a little bit about that without saying explicitly it explicitly, in talking about Jennings' most recent book, After Whiteness, where he talks about mastery as a, as an aspect of white supremacy and this kind of plantation narrative where to be a master is to experience and do certain things and to master people, to master ideas, because it gives us power and control. And I think banking models of education specifically set us up to do that. But are there ways yeah. that you see it connected to whiteness, both yeah. ideologically and in just what we're seeing in the world right now? Yeah, well... <clears throat> I, I think that the word that you use that's key is, is the word control. That so much of the banking model of education, whether it's theological education or other kinds of education, is this power dynamic where the teacher knows all and the teacher has all the power and the teacher has to deposit all the things that the teacher thinks is important into your brain and you must master it in order to become a teacher in the future. And uh, there's, yeah, there's so many things about it. I think the first thing that comes to mind is how dislocating, disembedding, and disembodied that is. Because it doesn't have anything to do in this model, the object circumstances and life experiences and questions and pains and hopes 
have very little to do with the curriculum mm -hmm. that the, the subject, the teacher, the agent is choosing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my learning about a general of the Civil War in America while I was 10 or 11 in Hong Kong, like who, who decided that that was a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who decided that a, that a Cantonese Hong Kong boy needed to know about the American Civil War and about General Sherman? It doesn't make any sense when I yeah. think about it, you know? Um, and it's this idea when I think about American exceptionalism or the idea that our knowledge and our history is the most important history. And you have to learn it because mm -hmm. why not? That kind of normative narrative where just whiteness is always the center and orients everything else, including my education far, far, far away mm -hmm. is, is so incoherent to me now that I think about it today. But that's just how, that's how whiteness works, right? It's, mm -hmm. we are the thesis and everybody else around us needs to orient around it. We know what's important. Mm -hmm. We will decide like, this is what has gotten civilization to where it is. And it's a gift to the rest of humanity. So, and sure, there are some things that are, we're still working out maybe some of the kinks in the system, though some of those kinks are, you know, due to the character flaws or the immoralities of the people. But for the most part, this is a gift, a huge mm -hmm. gift. And so education, our history, our facts, our knowledge, our stories are what you should receive gratefully because we are benevolent educators teaching you, I mean, doing a form of, of welfare yes. for the folks who have to learn the things that we know. Whereas what would have been helpful for me is to learn about the history of colonialism of Hong Kong between the British and China. And those are things that I have to learn. Like I learned a little bit of it then because I lived there in 1997 when I remember watching the flags change and the coins change and the streets change. But we weren't talking about that in class. We were learning about freaking General Sherman. Yeah. You know, and his I think he marched somewhere. You know, it's so so disconnected and so unimportant. Um but that's what whiteness does is it says, no, this is the most important thing. These other stories are, you can learn them in optional places. Yes. Um, and that's just not real. You know? Well, and I think that what you're saying feels really significant in that, of course, in a Western-centric, white-centric education model, that talking about decolonizing or colonization in any kind of real terms isn't going to be at the center. Because if whiteness sees itself as the most all-encompassing way of in which we are human, then to talk about how we got there through colonizing people groups and erasing people groups over and right. over again and erasing history in the name of regurgitating information, of course we're going to end up with a white supremacist society and state that's more comfortable having information deposited into us than actually going, ooh, maybe that wasn't right. Or like maybe yeah. erasing that, that people group's culture is an injustice or shapes us somehow. Or like, maybe I need to reclaim my own culture and my own expression of that and my own history because whiteness lied to me by telling me that this was the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, it, it's so bizarre to me that, you know, I grew up, even though 
Cantonese was my first language. It is my heart language. My parents spoke to me. But as soon as I started school, it was eradicated by English. Hmm. And, you know, folks all the time say to me, oh, your English is so good, but you grew up in Asia. But yes, it is true. I grew up in Asia. I also grew up in an outpost of the American or British colonial project, which is why I speak English this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just thinking back to school, it's so it, like we weren't taught, you know, you could learn I, as an as a secondary language, a foreign language, you could learn Spanish, French, or Mandarin. And you would have one period of your 12 periods of the day that was Chinese culture. It was just such a bizarre reflecting back on it. You know, I guess they were trying, which is good. Sure. You know, (laughs) but you learn very quickly as a kid that, and and I even notice it in myself when I go back to Singapore. So I go back to Singapore. Singapore's primary language is English. They chose that very intentionally Mm -hmm. as a prior colony of the UK. Singapore's history is very interesting. Um, I noticed that when I was in line, this is a few years ago, when I was in line in Starbucks, that, you know, I'm always, we're always code switching, right? We're always Mm -hmm. figuring out what what language to use. Um, And I was in line at Starbucks and I decided, I was so frustrated because the line was taking so long that I decided I would speak in an American accent. And that me speaking, and I knew intuitively in my body that me speaking in an American accent would mean something to the people behind the counter and it would get me better service and it would tell people something about my class within Singapore yeah, about my power, my economic status and my privilege. And it just, I was so frustrated that I just spoke like this instead of how I usually speak when I'm in Singapore. That is some whiteness at work. Yes deeply at work and I had to like repent and think about that afterwards but it's so deep you know people think that it's just you know single it thinks it's just an American thing but it's not just an American thing it's reached so far across the world and shapes people like me who's trying to live and help other people live that in the moment of frustration it just comes out of you to assert its dominance to say if I speak with an American accent it means that I deserve more Oh, well, and it's wild because we're taught that we're taught those associations in how we learn, not just what we learn, that it's like, if I speak in this way, I will receive this kind of treatment. And we don't even have to think it through. Like, you don't even have to make the analysis. Like, if I speak in an American accent, I will whatever. It's like, if I want to sound smart, and, and I do this, like, if I want to sound smart in front of a group of white men who I know do not respect me. I will use complicated language that I know that they do not understand that is abstract and theoretical because then they can't add to the conversation in such a way that it makes them feel like I've mastered something and therefore am worth something in the room. And I think for communities of color, we have to do that all the time, that we have to prove ourselves in the this banking model of education manifestation in such a way that says like, hey, I'm legitimate. And yeah. I think in Christian space, in white Christian space specifically, this gets becomes, again, very nefarious because it's manifest in things that are seen as simple and spiritual and right and good. I think about how we teach people to pray mm. and that prayer is like a 
prayer in Western culture is very formal. Like when we teach kids to pray when they're young, it's like, it's like you're writing a freaking letter to God, like, dear Jesus, I love you and have no bad feelings. Mm-hmm. Here's a theological idea I feel good about. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus's name, amen. And you're like, oh my gosh, if you were just to give that to somebody that wasn't a Western Christian and ask like, what do you think about this? You would know that it was indoctrination. You would know mm. that it was this kind of banking model where a kid is just regurgitating what they think their authority figure wants to hear from them. Mm-hmm. And that's deeply troubling because I think we teach yeah. that kind of disembodiment really early. So then when we're in situations like you're talking about, we don't even know that we're doing this kind of colonizing act of using and controlling language and knowledge to weaponize it to get what we want in the world, which is an inherently white Western centric thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to talk about banking models of education. I mean, and even Frary, it's, it's coming out of post-colonial work, right? It's, Mm -hmm. we can't, this, this form of education is so deeply colonial that the violence runs deep, even though we kind of mask it in a lot of benevolence because we're giving you gifts. But the reality is that it is, um, I love the language that, Frere uses he's he says um control is the banking concept of education is necrophilic it loves death and that that's somebody saying what's true mm-hmm. it's easy for us to talk about education and to think oh it's good it's it's this process you have to go through to be able to get a job and get the life that you want and flourish within our society. But I love how Freire names it as this model of education creates individuals who love death, who love mm-hmm. control and participate in a society that is built upon death and control. Yes. And that word used, I think is really important. It's death and control by way of violence. And I think that we talk about violence just as physical violence, but I think in our education systems Mm. and in our theological education systems, we use violence from a very young age to teach people what is right and what is wrong or what, you know, and we we do that in binaries. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is even the notion of grading, like that we teach people from a really young age that to not regurgitate the words of the hierarchy in the system is to be measurably less than, measurably less human, measurably less good, measurably less a student, and therefore worthy of punishment or being expelled or suspended from a space because you, if you cannot or will not do that kind of thing. And so we teach that when people cannot regurgitate information that they should be judged or penalized or shamed or have a diminished sense of self that they need to work on. Mm-hmm. And I think that Christians impose this in really particular ways in how we think about discipleship, which is like, if you're not at this place and you can't say the right things about this particular thing, then you need to harm yourself in some way, diminish yourself in some way to be more like Christ who would want you to regurgitate this fundamental truth about who God is and how God operates in the world. And yeah. to me, that kind of violence is at the root of all of the entire colonial project, as well as how we try to form, and again, we would say malform or deform people into the image of white Jesus that we see playing out in all kinds of explicit violence in the world right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, it, we have to go so, it's, when we start to talk about this stuff, it's like, it goes so deep so quickly. Mm -hmm. And like, some of what we're talking about right here is that 
there is this deep belief within the Christianity that we're talking about where your thoughts and how you can verbalize them and your beliefs are really, at the end of the day, they're salvific. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can say the right things and you say that you believe in these theories, you are then, you've crossed over a line from hell into heaven. Mm. And hell, I mean, I remember as a kid too, I got threatened one time in this social experiment that my professor was running, which is one of, he was one of my best and weirdest professors. He ran a social experiment on the whole class, <laughs> probably, you know, ethics, I don't know. But <laughs> he ran this experiment and he, he did something to another professor and was seeing who would stand up to him. And I remember trying to stand up and him threatening me with detention. And all of a sudden, all these things that I've been taught about what kind of person goes to detention, instantly, I remember shrinking back and sitting down. Mm. Because only bad people go to detention. So clearly, I, I couldn't really challenge his authority. And I needed to shut up and fit back into what mm. was happening, even though what was happening was wrong. Yeah. And he had set it up that way. I mean, it's one of the most effective, <laughs> most expect, effective experiences of education that I've ever been in. But this idea, going back to theology of if you have the right beliefs and you cling to them, and I don't think people talk about this, but we deeply live in an age where your theories that you espouse and say you affirm are what save you. Yes. Regardless of how transformative that is for your actual life mm -hmm. as long as you can affirm these doctrinal statements and feel some way emotionally about them then you're good mm. and your job is to make sure that you bank this doctrinal information into other people so that they can also affirm these statements about god or reality but they're completely yeah. disconnected from our our lived life and um, yeah, I like how um, there's this scholar, which I just say a scholar. I, it's not more to say this is not an original thought, but one that I found really helpful was about how folks oftentimes he's he's writing. If you consider most conservative evangelicals, they do not believe that God is a lively character or a real agent because they've got God all packaged up into sustained systematic explanations. Mm. All you have to do is master those explanations and then you're a Christian. Hmm. but that's not that's not what I want anymore <laughs> you know like yeah well and you have to imagine and abstract a world that does not exist in order to do that like I think about how we teach I've been thinking of I, I have a children's bible that I bought just to kind of be hmm. like how do we inform kids hmm. and there's this idea that like there are these pearly gates somewhere that you get to and I don't I think a lot of us have this idea in our minds that we can't locate anywhere but that we've been mm -hmm. taught it that we're going to get to the gates and God's going to give a test and going to ask if, you're, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that that's going to be determined by whether you said this certain prayer, whether you had this transaction with God that right. is a banking transaction where you do a thing, therefore God does a thing for you, which then makes God the object of our own mm -hmm. sense. So there's a whole lot more there where we like play God mm -hmm. in God's world. 
but it's a test of knowledge, not a salvation is not a test of knowledge that's later, not a lived reality that's right now. Yes. Yeah. And I think to be really explicit about what this looks like in real time, I think we've seen this play out in the administration of Donald Trump in really substantial ways. Hmm. Um, One of the things that I notice most about what he does is he establishes himself as the teacher, the dictator, the and I I say dictator uh, both carefully and maybe some tongue in cheek, but he establishes himself as the person by which real knowledge comes. Then he takes things that are happening in the media, mainstream media specifically, which is based some on ratings, but some on people's embodied experiences. So like, what is happening to black lives? What is happening to queer folks in the Trump administration? What is happening to immigrants? What is happening to people? And it says those people, those voices are not trustworthy because they don't come from the center. This like mm-hmm. white male mm-hmm. land owning, like he's the ultimate white man in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So you create a distrust in the media of experiential knowledge, of knowledge that's happening in real time. You abstract an enemy far away, socialism, Marxism, liberal Dems, the left just wants to take away your guns, and then teaches you to consume that as the ultimate truth. And so then when anything, so you you then acquire a bunch of talking points that you hear over and over in an increasingly loud vacuum. Yeah. So that when someone like Donald Trump says something in that speech a while back where he says, like, we need to fight for the country. A group of people know what that means without him having to be like, go storm the Capitol. He can just say, we need to fight. And they're going to take everything that he said, everything that he's banked and all the distrust that he's banked in embodied experience and send in like basically an army of people to do violence. And I think that that's how this kind of banking model works is that it cuts out all embodied experience and Mm -hmm. says instead, I have the knowledge. You are the receptacle in which I put my knowledge to maintain power and control. And if you can regurgitate the right information, it will save you. And I see this happening uh, in the Republican Party a lot right now, even as I watch the debates that were playing out in the language that was being used that didn't make any sense, but that was just a a dog whistle, really, to we need to maintain power and control. And we will do that by using this language that we know our constituents will hear and will mm-hmm. will move around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what I notice in that, what you're talking about, it's, it's true. It's, I like how you, it's helpful actually for me to think about how he organizes truth because he does do that, right? Like so much of the critique of Trump and the whirlwind and tornado that it feels like we in, it feels like reality itself is being shredded by this president. And it's because he's asserting arbitrary truths that do not at all fit with lived realities well with some people's lived realities it kind of makes interpretive sense of mm-hmm. some people sure. but for a lot of us it's bizarre it's another world but he has a positional power to assert that this is ultimate reality mm-hmm. which is n- not true and but i i recognize patterns of that even in how maybe we're you know maybe this is getting ahead of myself but even in how we teach very fundamental things about Christianity. Say more. So, you know, when I was raised, and even in my first few years of training within the, the ministry, a lot of time is spent cap, camped out in First and Second Timothy. And a lot of First and Second Timothy is about 
defend the deposit that you have been given. Like the wording couldn't even, the wording fits so well with what we're talking about right here, right? Defend the deposit that you've been given and guard the faith. The language is so consonant and resonant with some of the political moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. The problem in some ways is that, you know, the way that evangelical Christianity is structured is that that Paul's letters can be completely grafted out of time, like completely excavated from their actual meanings and just mm-hmm. applied. And we, we can project what we want to mean into that deposit mm-hmm. because we've codified salvation as if you proclaim Jesus as savior and Lord, and you believe in him, then you're saved. And that's this little codification that's supposed to be the thing you that's, like abstract. It doesn't have anything to do with mm-hmm. the history of Israel. It doesn't have anything to do with Israel as a political nation that had hopes and had dreams and a specific economy for the way that God was going to reveal God's self to bless the entire created order. Instead, we just have this hole that we can project into. And I feel like we see right now politically the fruit of that, mm-hmm. where it's we're going to protect this arbitrary thing that we have created and by force if necessary. There's so much military yes. image that we see, yes. we hear certain Republican Congress people explicitly utilizing yes. to reassert dominance and a call for control. Mm. And I do think it descends very closely from the ways that we educate within Christianity. I think that's very true, which is why as we transition toward, toward the close here, I am finding that there's a seems to be a perfectly reasonable explanation for how people can call themselves Christian but hate the words of Jesus, and I think it's what you just said. Mm. That I think that Jesus actually doesn't fit into this deposit withdraw model at all in how he teaches. Yeah. And instead of doing this, like Paulo Freire would say that the solution to banking models of education would be critical pedagogy or critical theory or critical education, which many would say is the origin place of liberation theology. But it basically says that learners get to take agency in how they learn. Um, Some Mm -hmm. people call this unschooling, like where the learner gets to choose how and what they learn and in what way, and has a sense of their own self as not an object of learning, but as a participant, and as a person who's being shaped by their own experience and what they're being taught from the outside. And that mm-hmm. learning then becomes a collaborative project that is informed by the life that we live. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is the parables of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That Jesus himself, instead of being like, Jesus could have easily said, here's a, here's a truth. Here's, yes. here's what to believe. But instead he says, okay, the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is like... It is like, and then he gives these images that are about weddings and farming to an agrarian people. He's taking things that they would know embodied, they would know in their experience Mm -hmm. and says, it's like this. And then he rarely, rarely, rarely tells them what the parable means, but instead goes, here is an idea. How does this idea intersect with your life? And what does Mm -hmm. that mean in following me? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason that the parables get turned into like, like even in our, even in our experiences of campus ministry, I think it's like a parable has a single point. And I'm like, okay, sure. Maybe there's like a main thing that's trying to be said. But if there was a main thing that was so important to Jesus to say, he would have said it and not mm-hmm. left it up to an intersection of one's lived experience and the knowledge, the thing that he's giving them 
to not deposit, but to interact with and to be shaped mm -hmm. by and to shape in their communities together. And so I'm mm -hmm. curious what other ways that you see what you see in the person and teachings of Jesus that actually give us a different way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'll start with before Jesus, so much of what I've been doing in my own relearning of the faith is just reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament just gives us stories, stories of Israel's foundation and their, and it's funny as I'm reading through, I find in myself the habit of, okay, how do I distill out? What does this really mean? What is the point of what it's trying to teach us? But the reality, and that is banking. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to educate myself in a banking model, right? Trying to distill out. Yeah. But what it's giving us is just stories yeah. and trusting that stories shape us so deeply because they teach us about like people's pain and hurt and about a place and about bodies and how they relate to each other. They show us a different kind of reality. Mm -hmm. It's very vulnerable because I think you can miss story and story can be misinterpreted also. Mm -hmm. But the scriptures, for the most part, the, the Hebrew scriptures, for the most part, just give us like poetry and narrative. Yeah. And invite us to indwell a world of humans, creation, and God interacting together in all of its mess. So yes. I think one thing that I'm, I'm personally just trying to do is how do I just sit? How do I just read? It's actually funny because I'm reading scripture so much quicker now. I used to be like, okay, i got to figure out how many words is it? How many times is it repeated? What's the cause and effect here? Which, you know, those are good tools. But now I'm reading it and just being like, how do I just read this soap opera? Mm -hmm. I was telling folks like, yo, Israel's story is just a messy soap opera and it is thrilling. Like yes. on the level, well, maybe even more dramatic than Schitt's Creek. Yeah. It is just yeah. fun and interesting to read. Yes. And I think a big part of that is I'm learning to trust that there is a reality that is true out there that doesn't need to be policed. Yes. Like yes. I can let the reality of the world slowly shape me instead of having to always be afraid that I'm not getting the right codified thought yes. deposited, but that as you were saying, like Jesus is very unclear and invites us into a lot of unknowing and, and mystery so that we might kind of kindle within us, I think, this curiosity of, well, what does it mean? Yeah. Instead of trying, it's very hard to master, yes. you know, any of this in the scriptures. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm trying to imagine, like, I think one thing that I love about you is that you live out this kind of reality. And I ask you a question and you're like, well, here's a story. That it's not, here's an answer, it's it's here's a story. And it mm. would be so violent and so terrible if I heard your stories and I was like, oh, well, in your story, this is this thing, and this means this, and this means this, therefore your story means this thing. There's a reason that Christianity is so comfortable with disembodiment, and it's because mm. we do that, because we make everything mean something to us even if it's someone else's experience or someone else's story, instead of asking, what is my relationship to your story? What is my relationship to the conclusions that I might draw from your story? How does this shape me and affect me today? But because we are, as you say, so really expert in codifying information and then setting it far away as something that we observe constantly but never interact with, it makes things like Bible study violent. 
Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we just take a story, we reduce it into something that we can digest and then impose onto other people if we're Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. And then when people don't embrace the truth that we have found, we find ways to penalize them. Mm-hmm. Right? In our organizational context, it can look like kicking people off of leadership or making people go through like a theological cohort or read a book about sex or sexual identity or the Trinity or whatever in order to reform someone into our own image. And so I think that there's a, what you're saying in, as I read the Hebrew scriptures over and over again, a different relationship where we're observing something that happened or didn't happen or some a story that a community formed together and saying, how might this shape me? How does this intersect with my life? How does this make me feel? And it doesn't mean that we're not going to come to some like fundamental themes or truths or ideas out of that. But I think that there's a reason in all of that, that the Hebrew scriptures, one of the primary calls or commands is to remember. Mm -hmm. It's not to learn. It's not to ingest information. It's to remember their stories and to retell them. Like the book Mm -hmm. of Deuteronomy exists to retell a community about what it means to be human through the lens of their narratives. And so, yeah, I think that this kind of reclaiming of story, this reclaiming of understanding our relationship to things more than we just understand things in and of themselves seems like it really matters a lot as we move forward and makes me curious about the ways that Jesus asked a lot of questions in his ministry, in his ministry that weren't just yeah. rhetorical questions. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of the time in my evangelical background, it's like, Oh, Jesus asked a question, but Jesus is perfect. So Jesus knew beforehand that so-and-so was going to respond this way. And I think that sometimes Jesus is just like, what do you think about this? Mm. And he hears their responses and interacts with that reality mm. without being like, Nope, this is what I am. Or this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Or this is how I, mm-hmm. And so I think there's something to that kind of question asking, parable using, relational, embodied, present, letting their experiences shape their lives reality that feels so much more liberating and good and worthwhile than just like the violence of ingesting scripture and then regurgitating it so God will love us. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's so sad because you have this these great stories that you have reduced to nothing more than something you're supposed to dissect and pull out these mm-hmm. nuggets from. And it, it is violent. Like we've, we've done violent, we've been trained to do violence to prose instead of just letting prose kind of shape us in a certain way. It's like there, and we're just, I don't know, it makes me sad because we're narrative beings, but banking theology, banking education shapes us to be robots, to think about yes. everything mechanically that you can, pull out one piece and replace it with another Yes. Um, instead of what, you know, I think the scriptures call us to and what Freire is talking about is a hope that people would fully become more and more human and mm-hmm. flourish over time to like yeah. live into their agency. I think it's really hard though. Like some of this, I want to name that the move from a banking education model and a banking theology model to something else one, as we've already named, is super disruptive. Mm-hmm. Super disruptive to the systems and structures and powers and authority. Mm-hmm. Because it means starting to question, like, well, why is it this way? Mm-hmm. And watching people police that. Yeah. Um, but also, it is, it's also very risky personally. Yes. Because it means that you will become not just, not just like theologically or spiritually houseless, but 
have a deep sense of spiritual or theological homelessness, I think. Yes. Because you're leaving a structure, you're being ostracized, disconnected, or cast out from a camp, or choosing willingly to leave a place that is very structured and very organized, Mm -hmm. maybe quite violent, but that you have grown up living in, and instead you're relegated out into the wilds and wilderness where you have to figure out, but you just can't no longer live there. And so all that is to say that it is a very risky thing to do Yes. to decide, like, I don't think this works anymore. I want more for myself and my community and my life. But I think that that's a good process. And I get encouraged many of the time when I think about, like, the ways that Jesus finds himself outside of the camp and Jesus finds himself ostracized and outside of the religious order. Well, and it sounds like the process that you're describing is what many of us call in a buzzword deconstruction. Mm. It's saying there's this way that we've known the world that is incomplete, that is malforming, deforming us. And so we ask questions and throw questions and our experiences into the mix of the things that we've been taught and that we've learned. And that we experience the consequences of that system that has taught us doing the thing that it's always said it's going to do, grade us, judge us, shame us, kick us out, put us in our place, hold us back. And that that has very real implications for our lives. And so I think as I consider folks who have begun deconstructing and have lost their church family or their like biological family or their friend groups or their sense of self or their love for scripture, it makes sense to me that many people just want to throw faith out altogether because the consequences of both holding faith and deconstructing it at the same time are so mm. grave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because this model of education doesn't allow space for all of the things that are in us that are are us to have right. any kind of meaning in the world. And right. so I just, I hear what you're saying with so much compassion for people and for myself going, this is a costly work. And I, I suppose the way of saying it is like the work of humanizing ourselves, rehumanizing ourselves, unschooling ourselves from this process is painful and costly, mm-hmm. but it is not more painful and more costly than never living as ourselves and never fully embodying who we are in the world. And I always say to people like, your body's the only home you're ever going to live in forever. And so we need to know ourselves and be able to be shaped by that. But I think what you're naming in that is the cost of doing so. And I think that's the process that a lot of us are in right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you want to add as we close out any words or things that you want to plug? Yeah, I think what I'll say here at the end is just that one of the most helpful things that a professor said to me in seminary was that all theology, as he knew it, all the great theologians were just responding to the haunting questions of their time and place. So folks responding to the rise of Hitler, folks responding to apartheid. What was really helpful to me about that question, about that statement, was that it allowed for me to start to ask, what is the pain of my community? Or what is the pain or question that I have that I am unsettled by in our current society and system. And that is the process of beginning, even though I don't think I had the no, the ability to name it this way then, but that is the beginning of theologizing. We theologize all the time, but the reason why it was helpful for me to hear that from a systematic theology professor was that now my pain, my experience, my embodied life and the concerns of my community were 
now valid data, valid spaces to theologize from, and that they were deeply connected to the things that mean the most to us. And so much of this journey that I've been on is learning how to reclaim my own agency as a subject instead of an object, as a person that has questions that long for answers, that long for understanding, and that that longing, that 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 curiosity, curiosity is almost too light of a word, but that needing or desire to know and to understand is what has continuously drawn me into deeper and deeper levels of our own sanctity and sacredness of all of creation. It's funny, sometimes I think that the fear might be from folks who leave this banking or are trying to leave a banking theology or banking education system and some of the, there are risks there, um, but some of the fear might be that, oh, anything is up for grabs now and there's no guardrails on what is truth and what is real. Um, and that you would, I think the biggest fear for folks in Christianity is that you would quote unquote, lose your salvation. But I think where I have, I have found that not to be true. And in fact, I have found that on my journey of really problem posing and asking the questions that need to be asked, I have found more and more wisdom, more and more joy and hope, and at the same time, more and more sorrow. And I would describe that as the process of me and me becoming more and more fully human. And for us as Christians, I think that that's the journey. Jesus was fully human and showed us what that meant. And we have language that is helpful where it's about growing up into Christ, growing up into being like Jesus, a fully human person with desires and wants and needs and questions, and was humanizing and consecrating and sanctifying everything, everyone around him. So yeah, kind of at the end of this, thanks so much for inviting me to uh, chat with you about this. This is something I'm still learning about and practicing in the cohorts that I lead in the places that I get a chance to educate. Um, my question that I'm asking myself and others around me is, what is your pain? And what is your question? And take those things seriously and sacredly because God is doing something exactly at that place. And you will be invited to leave all these structures that have felt secure, but you will fall into an ocean that um, is full of grace and is built, really built on the rock, a rock that maybe because we've been used to other things being secure, we've, I think we've mistaken the places that we've come from as solid rock, but they really are shifting sands. And if they cannot withstand the force of your questioning, then they're not truly solid. But to leave and to move towards the scriptures and to the parables and to the questions of Jesus and the stories of Israel, the wrestling of Israel, we find a place where we can actually stand, where, where there is something real 
that takes into consideration the deepest longings and questions and needs and desires of our lives, of our community's hearts, um, that is worth exploring for a lifetime. Oh my gosh, it's so good, Barnabas. It's so good. Well, we will wrap up there, but thank you. Thank you so much for being here. You have been, and this has been such a gift. Thanks, y'all, for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. I said all the stuff I normally say on the back end, on the front end, but I do want to remind you all that we have a Lent ebook available. So if you're looking for something to help you reflect, connect with the earth, connect with yourself, connect with others, connect with God, then this is the resource for you. We also wanted to make it accessible to anyone who wants to use it. And so if you'd like to get that, we have it on a name your price model on our website at reclaimingmytheology.com. My hope is that in reflection and in engagement, that we would find ourselves a little bit more deeply. And as we find ourselves, that we would find the divine, that we would find each other, and that we would be connected to the home planet that we live on. And in so, I think that we would do a little bit better together. 